preaching of God's word this morning will once again come from the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Turn there if you would, either in your own Bible or ones provided there in the pew. We're looking further at Genesis chapter 3. The text that I'll be preaching from this morning begins at verse 8, extends through verse 11. I'll begin reading at verse 6 for its context and read through verse 11, Genesis chapter 3. This is the word of God. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together, made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you? Not to eat is the word of God. Amen. Shall we seek the Lord's blessing on his word? Let's pray together. Quite confident, O Lord, we'll not exhaust our understanding and experience of the preaching of the word, all the good you have for us in this text. Lord, it is our prayer, all anew, that it will be something of your own purposes, Spirit of God, in inspiring these words that comes home to our hearts. We especially pray that we who have followed our first father, even in recent days or hours, hear and know what you'd have us to do. Father, come among us. Seek us. We do pray with all boldness in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we come this morning in the story of Genesis 3 to the very first encounter, the 
between God and a sinful human being. God is the newcomer in the story, you might say. So far we've met the serpent, seen the serpent talking to the woman. We've watched as the woman has turned to her husband. And all of that, God has, at least in terms of the telling of the story, not been featured until this moment. And now as we come to verse 8, the maker of the garden, the giver of the law, be broken, arrives. There is this reckoning for what has been done. As we look at this together this morning, there may be a surprise or two, even a pleasant one. So much to be learned by just this first encounter between God and a sin sinful human being. Uh, learned about ourselves, learned about God, learned about the gospel. So let's consider first this morning the presence of God feared. Then we'll look at the heart of God grieved. Then we'll look at the hiding and seeking begun. Verse 8 begins, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And there are several puzzles that first need to be solved in order for us to appreciate what he goes on to speak of as the presence of God feared. Uh, first of all, what is this reference to God walking? We know that God is a spirit. By nature, the creator doesn't have legs. He doesn't walk. Remember, if you've been together with me in our studies of Genesis so far, we've already seen evidences that God has been appearing in the garden in physical form. He, we are told, formed Adam's body from the dust, and we asked ourselves, uh, would that dust have come together under some kind of physical means? He breathed into the nostrils of Adam the breath of life. And we asked ourselves, would he have breathed into Adam's nose, his nostrils with a mouth, with actual air? We actually, back then, surmised, at least, that it would have been true to form for God to have appeared there in the garden in some physical form, indeed, in a human Form like he would not too many pages later in Genesis to the patriarchs. But I think Genesis 3.8 settles all doubt. It depicts God as walking in the garden. Brothers and sisters, that's what people do. This is God in human form coming for a visit with his human creatures, and I would submit to you even more specifically, this is Jesus becoming flesh temporarily for purposes of fellowship well in advance of his incarnation. I hope I've piqued your interest in reading John Milton and his telling of this story. I'll continue to try to do that. The angels 
uh, Milton depicts, have seen, they've observed with horror the fall of Adam and Eve, and they go back with their report to heaven, and they go before the Godhead, and they report what they've seen, and of course, God, who's all-knowing, assures them that this was foreseen, indeed part of his plan. And then Milton depicts the father saying to his son, you go, you go to Adam, you go. I think he's exactly right. God is walking in the garden. But second puzzle, how do they know the sound of that walk? We're uh, not sure about this initially. Was this just a scary sound, kids, that they'd never heard before? And that's what frightens them? No, actually the text seems to make it pretty clear. They know just by the sound who is present. They hide from, we're told, the presence of God, as verse 8 goes on to say. Now, I do not have this level of expertise in Hebrew, but scholars that I find myself confident in speak of the verb here, to walk, as in the Hebrew, conveying a sense of habit and familiarity and that suggests that they know the sound of God walking because they've heard it before. This is not the first time that God has entered the garden and walked in their direction. We don't know how long they lived in the garden prior to eating the forbidden fruit, but it was apparently long enough for them to know the sound of God paying a visit. One more puzzle is the significance of this expression, God comes walking in the cool of the day. That's how I think probably all your translations render it, though that's an interpretive translation. Your footnote might tell you it's literally God comes walking in the wind or the breeze of the day. I think I've shared this with you before, but that makes me think of camping. Probably because it's when I'm camping, particularly when I'm camping next to some body of water like a lake, that I'm most tuned in to what the breeze is doing. And I've noticed more than once that as the sun begins to set, the temperatures are changing. That's when the breeze picks up. If I'm at a lake, that's when the water gets choppy. And then after a while, it just settles down into the still of the night. That's how most of our translations are understanding what Moses is saying here. God is coming in the cool of the day. He's coming for presumably another evening visit. The work of the day is over. It's time for fellowship. God's people with one another and with God even. I love this glimpse of the pattern of communion with Christ in the garden. But my friends, with all that context, doesn't it make what verse 8 goes on to tell us so much more tragic? And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Last week we saw how immediately their, their shame for sin sets in. Immediately they reach for the most pathetic kind of covering for their bodies, fig leaves, 
Now we're seeing another phobia deep in their psychology. It's this reflexive aversion, not only to being naked, even more in the presence of God. Presumably, before they had eaten the forbidden fruit, they would have heard the sound of God walking in the garden, and they would have gone to him. They would have perhaps even won to him. Now their reflex is just the opposite. It's to run from him and even to hide. What's happened to them? Well, we're told in verse 10, Adam explains himself, they've acquired an unholy fear of God. Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Adam is saying, I've come to see something about myself that's despicable, and I was afraid of what you would think and what you would do when you saw the same thing in me. Brothers and sisters, this is not the good kind of fear of God. Elder Cleveland spoke of that holy fear of God early in our service, and this is the fear of God that Adam in his sinlessness would have rightly had as he heard God say to him, in his innocence, do not eat of that tree. The day you eat of it, you will die. And he would have, in response to that warning and that command, yes, that threat, he would have had a holy fear of displeasing God. And that holy fear would have kept him from eating the forbidden fruit. And as a matter of fact, it was only by the loss of that fear of God that he ate. That's the kind of fear that God intended for Adam to have, and Adam already had. So the moment came that he ate. But what verse 10 is talking about is the kind of fear that God never intended for Adam, one that only guilty sinners have. It's not a fear of displeasing God. It's a fear of the displeased God. Fear of the sinner who realizes God has every right to be exceedingly angry. This, friends, is the unspeakable tragedy of it all. Adam's sin has turned the presence of God in the garden from a blessing to a curse the best thing about being in that garden, that God was wont to come there and to fellowship with the inhabitants of that garden. Remember all we said about this garden? It was the place where heaven and earth was connected, as it were. It was the temple in the earth, the garden temple. But now look what's happened. Guilt has made man afraid presence of God. Before I go any further, I want to point out every last one of you knows what this feels like. You know about this 
guilty feel, don't you? It may at times only register itself in your experience like discomfort, but it is still the same reality that Adam and Eve are feeling when they hear the sound of God walking in the garden. You know this, it registers in your hearts as a kind of reluctance to draw near to God when you know something is not right in your life. You might even go through a season of ducking and dodging God. You don't actually want to be with him, at least not right now, and certainly not alone. Sometimes we feel like we're safety in numbers. Something's on your conscience. It's intimidating and unpleasant for you to think about being in the presence of God. You know this so very well. If you're honest with yourself, it's a big reason why time alone with God gets shuffled to the side amid our other priorities. Because you're just not entirely comfortable that way. It's one of the reasons why it's easier to pray with other people than by ourselves. Praying by ourselves is so exposing, so open and vulnerable. Brothers and sisters, it's a fundamental reason why we, even as the people of God, can go whole seasons of time disconnected from God. It's because we have what Adam and Eve are showing. They have a guilty fear, the kind of fear that is unholy. Maybe preaching to someone who's hiding from God just now. And I'm thankful you're here. This is where the presence of God may be found, but you're not entirely comfortable here, are you? If you're hiding from God, whatever good things have brought you here, you're not entirely at home here. You might be spending, other than these formal occasions of gathering the presence of God, you may be spending weeks or even months avoiding God. Certainly avoiding being alone with God. Our daily sin has the same tendency in our lives as it had in Adam and Eve's life. For the moment, I just want you to see in yourself the same thing we see in Adam and Eve. Presence, God, fear. Number two, let's consider the heart of God, greed. So verse 8 has depicted for us the tragedy of this wrong kind of fear of God, what it looks like. Adam and Eve have run from his presence, and then... Verse 9, we have God's response. As I've said already, the first recorded word of God to sinful man, we read, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, what are we to make of this? These first words of God to sinful children how are we to hear that question? I need to tell you, there are some who read these first words of God to Adam and Eve very differently than I do. 
uh, they see in God's appearance there in the garden something dreadful and terrifying, and they might be inclined to hear that first question of God, where are you, in some kind of booming, terrifying voice, bellowed in anger. I found that recent commentators, among some at least, have revisited that word in verse 8, the cool of the day. They've seen that that literally is the wind of the day, and they've gone a very different direction. Uh, They say what's happening here is that God has descended into the garden in a storm. One theologian calls it a storm theophany. He's showing up in this fearful display of power and wrath, and they run because they're terrified by the coming of one they don't have never seen before in this way. In that view, the questions are the interrogations of an angry judge. Well, I don't see it that way at all. I don't see God whirling in a storm. I see him, the text says, walking in the garden. And I again say that's of great significance. Listen to Matthew Henry, who's risen to the top of all my commentaries on Genesis. He says, it was the approach of the judge that put them into a fright. Yet, he came in such a manner as made it fearful only to guilty consciences. He appeared to them now, it should seem, in no other manner than that in which they had seen him when he put them into paradise. For he came to convince and humble them, not to amaze and terrify them. He came into the garden, not descending directly from heaven in their view as afterwards on Mount Sinai. He came into the garden one that was still willing to be familiar with them. He came walking. Henry's got it exactly right. And it's confirmed by Adam's testimony. Adam doesn't say, I was afraid because you were so scary. He says, I was afraid because I was naked. What I find especially enlightening about God's manner of coming is that those first words to sinners are not a statement. They're not a challenge that's angry. They're not even a summons that's stern. It's a question, and I read it as a plaintive question. Where are you? Now, you know that when God asks questions like this, he's not doing it like we do, seeking information. He doesn't have. God is all-knowing, all-seeing. He saw everything that Adam and Eve had done there at the tree with the serpent. He knows where Adam and Eve are, even as they crouch behind trees. So he's not here asking for information he doesn't have, and he's not either feigning ignorance He's talking like parents talk to their children. You see a little child, uh, sometimes literally covered in the evidence of their wrongdoing. 
parent says, what have you been doing? Parent's not asking for information, is he? When a parent gets a reliable report on the conduct of his child and says to his child, is there anything you need to tell me? It's a sincere question, but it's of a rhetorical nature. But, brothers and sisters, my point is here, what we are hearing in our Lord's question is, as much as anything else, an expression of lament, of grief. He is questioning about Adam who has come to see his presence as something unwelcome. Could there be anything more devastating to the heart of a father? One of the men appearing before Presbytery this weekend was asked in his coming under care exam, which, uh, as all our seminarians know, is the light, the easy exam. Tell us about your children. That's a pretty great question, isn't it? One candidate said, one of my favorite moments in life these days, when I come home and my three-year-old daughter hears me at the door and screams, Daddy's home, comes running to me. Indeed, that's a pretty great moment for dads. Imagine that same man with that testimony, though, with an opposite experience. Through no fault of his own, through some perverse transformation of his daughter's heart, the sound of his step on the porch, his hand on the doorknob, the opening of the door created terror, and she ran from him. Imagine, imagine what heartbreak. And that's my thesis in this second point seeing the heart of God grieve. God's first words to Adam are an expression of stricken love. The same sentiment expressed later in the scriptures in Isaiah 65. Grief of God there is expressed. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people. The same sentiment Jesus expresses in Matthew 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? You were not willing. I'm hearing this question, where are you? There's the poignant question of a friend who's been betrayed, a lover who's been abandoned, a father who's been shunned by his own beloved children. I'm saying to you, brothers and sisters, this is quite a glimpse into the heart of God towards wayward children. I wonder if it would do us some good when we're in the grip when we're in the grip of temptation on one hand, or if having fallen to temptation in the grip of guilty fears on the other hand, 
to hear the sad in God's voice, not only the mad. The sad, which is a signal of his love, which is a signal of the grief at fellowship. Lost, at least in some measure. Uh, I would suggest that these first words to Adam by God make us mindful of what Adam's sin was like to God. How God saw Adam and Eve's sin, how he received their doubt of him, their trust in someone else, their seeking to gain for themselves something that he had wisely and in love sought to shield them from. I think if we got more of an understanding and a mindfulness of the sad God in his sin, well, actually, that could be even more convicting, I grant it. It could be even more devastating to us. Sometimes say to my wife when I'm apologizing to her for something I've done that was wrong, please don't be sad at me. Mad is bad. Sad is even harder. When I know the sadness is because of my sin. Friends, sisters, if you recognize the grief of God at your large or small infidelities, there is something in that. There is something in that very reassuring. It's love to get free like that. I think that's why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, he has just been exhorting the saints not to speak to each other with corrupting talk, as he puts it, which tears down one another. And he goes on to say, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He doesn't make that expression up, grieving the Spirit. That's actually the way the prophet Isaiah speaks of that whole sad history of Israel. They grieve. His Holy Spirit, Isaiah says. Brothers and sisters, consider not only the God who's mad, the God who's sad at anything, at everything that you do, just like your father and Adam did, that will come between you make you think of his presence as something to be avoided. Where are you? The lament of a father for children who are no longer rushing to greet him. He's grieving, even as he goes to find them. Let's look at that then lastly. The presence of God feared, the heart of God grieved. The hiding and seeking Begun. I want at this point to step back just a step or two and think about this moment in the story that we're studying in the light of the rest of Scripture. And I want to ask you, is this not a little miniature of the rest of redemptive history? 
We gather from the way the story goes that Adam hears the voice of God, where are you? And he emerges from his hiding place to reply to the question. And eventually he and God are there standing face to face. They're talking. Friends, my point is from this point forward, that's what the history of redemption is going to look like. This is the history of redemption in miniature. It's going to look like sinful men hiding from God, a gracious God seeking them, all leading to an encounter between God and sinners that brings restoration. Children, you know of what I'm speaking of when I talk about hide and seek. Do we ever get too old to play that game? So some kids, most of them, are hiding in the game, right kids? And one person, maybe more, but usually one person is doing the finding, they're seeking, right? Kids, you might think that that's the game, quote unquote, that's being played here in the garden. Adam and Eve are hiding. God is seeking them. But here's what I want to point out. You might have thought it'd be the other way around. You might have thought that in response to Adam and Eve's rebellion against him, God would be the one hiding. Or, in so many words, he would be the one never seen again in the garden. He would remove himself from them. And man would be, the sinful man would be on this unending but futile search for God. You'd think perhaps it'd be just the other way around. And kids, you know, if God doesn't want to be found, he's not going to be found. That's not the way the history of redemption is going to go. Sinners by nature will want to have nothing to do with God. Will be for God to seek and to save them. Amazing sinners hiding God seeking all this culminating to another visit by God to the earth in which the man Jesus says the son of man came to seek and save the lost there, there is the gospel in its finale it, be, it begins here it's in miniature here in these opening moments where God and sinful men first encounter one another, God comes walking, no less. The person of Jesus to save sinners. I'm saying to you that we encounter so much about God in these first words. By the way, I'm by no means alone in seeing grace from the very first word of God to sinners. Again, Matthew Henry. This inquiry after Adam may be looked upon as a gracious pursuit in kindness to him and in order to his recovery. Derek Kidner, God's first word to fallen man has all the marks of grace. It is a question since to help him he must crawl rather than drive him out of hiding. Another just compares God in the garden to the good shepherd. 
is seeking the lost sheep. Brothers and sisters, there will be consequences for sin. The promised judgment is going to fall on Adam and Eve. We'll come to that, but I want you to see before we get to God saying, cursed is the ground because of you. You are dust, and to dust you shall return and get out of my garden. We first hear the sound of God walking in the garden, seeking fellowship despite what's happened. God says, where are you? So, brothers and sisters, this is the game of the ages, playing hide and seek with God. I've already spoken of the tragedy when we do this. We have opportunity to have fellowship with God, the one who made us and the one who loves us, and we're hiding from them. That's a tragedy. I've spoken of that. We could consider the futility of it. Sounds like a nightmare. Running through a forest, trying to hide from an all-seeing God. Isn't that the stuff of nightmares? Psalm 139 is all about that. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I wanted to, I couldn't, he says. This is the note that I want to end on for you to take with you this morning. I want you to consider, above all else, the goodness of the one who's seeking you now if you are hiding from him. Even if it's just you're holding back from a kind of pursuit of his presence that you've known even in the past, I want you to see his goodness. Yes, you've grieved him and displeased him. There will be consequences to our sins. We will die as Adam did. Brothers and sisters, he's seeking you. Even today in the preaching of the word, he's seeking you because there's a way to be restored to fellowship with him. Each of these questions he asks are really invitations. Just like the parent who says, what have you done? It's an invitation. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? That's an invitation. Confess your sin to me. Who told you that you were naked? I think that's an invitation to seek from God the remedy of their nakedness. Where are you? His first question. That's an invitation to come to him. Stop hiding. Guilty fear. So brothers and sisters, come out of hiding. Fellow sinners, come out of hiding. Even with all your guilty fears, it's a gracious God who seeks sinners. We have the same problem Adam had. We know far better than Adam, certainly in that moment, God's solution is to our guilty fears. Has this hymn been in your mind, in your ears? Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appeared. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hand. You need to spend part of this very Sabbath day. It's a pretty good day to do it. 
You need to spend part of this very Sabbath day shaking off your guilty fears in light of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and getting alone with God. Let's pray together. Hard as it is, O Lord, to see ourselves in Adam and Eve. Worth it, indeed, for the glimpse we get in your word of who you are for them and thus to us. And to the cry that has gone out from the preaching of the word to us this morning, where are you? say with yes we confess still guilty fears here we are we don't want to run anymore we want to take the invitation and your question you've come to us even though we're sinners we'll come to you Come to you, Jesus, the one who first called out to Adam because of all that you've done. Make it possible to be restored to regular and sweet and intimate fellowship. And we're invited. And so we come and receive that gift. In Jesus' name, amen.